Um, this is going to be our fifth lesson on the message of Stephen. So if you would open up your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 7, we will be looking at verses 30 to 37. And I have subtitled our lesson this morning, Moses, the Divine Commission. We will be talking about the incident, Moses before the burning bush. Very exciting. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time together that you have provided for us and the privilege we have to meet together with sisters in Christ for the sole purpose of getting to know you better through your word. And thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is personal, that you didn't just create us and then step aside and watch things evolve, but that you are in the midst of us at all times, watching from heaven, and that you have compassion for us and that you actually did something about that compassion concerning our disobedient state, that you came down from heaven yourself in order to take upon yourself your holy wrath for the sin that we have gotten ourselves into, that you took that wrath on yourselves, on yourself so that we didn't have to experience it. And we thank you so much for that truth. And I would pray, Father, that if there is someone here who has as of yet not partaken of the free gift of eternal life. Those in the wilderness, your children had to, they actually had to drink of the water that came out from the rock. They had to eat the manna that you provided, the bread of life that you provided on the ground. And they had to look upon that brazen serpent lifted up in the wilderness in order to be saved. And that's what we have to do. You said to as many as receive you, to them you gave the privilege of being called the children of God, the sons of God. So I would pray if someone has not yet moved the knowledge of you from her head to her heart and actually received you as personal Lord and Savior, that she would do that this very day. Make sure she is truly one of your children. Now I ask, Lord, that you would give me a passion for your word that is, that is passed on to your people, that you would help my head to stay clear and my thoughts to be pure and my words to, to truly glorify you because you alone deserve all the glory and the praise. For we do pray in the blessed name of our Savior, who is the great I Am. Amen. I got to thinking about the greatest honor that Moses ever experienced in his life. The greatest honor of his life was not that he was commissioned at the burning bush, which is what we will be looking at this morning, that he was commissioned to be the deliverer of Israel from Egypt. That was a great privilege, but it wasn't the greatest privilege of his life, nor was it that he was given the law by God himself up there on Mount Sinai. That too was a great privilege, but it wasn't the greatest honor of his life. It wasn't even the miracles that the Lord performed through him, the ten plagues and then the opening of the Red Sea so that they could cross over on dry ground. You know what the greatest privilege of Moses' life was? It was that he was able to, to say to Israel to predict that the one who would come, the prophet who would come, and they all knew he was speaking about the Messiah, the Savior, the seed of the woman, that he would be like unto him. Can you imagine saying to people, the Messiah to come, you'll know him, he'll be identifiable because he'll be like me. Wow, that is a mighty privilege. Not that he was like him in that Moses was a man and he was a sinner, but he was like him in so many of his experiences 
and the privileges he was given as a deliverer and as a mediator between God and man and as a judge of the people and a head of the people of Israel. Not, you know, he was a sinner, so in that fact, he was not a picture, a type of Jesus, but in so many other ways. And he said, he said to his people, he'll not only be like me, but guess what? You are to listen to him. You're to hearken unto him. He will have the final authority. Therefore, if he changes Mosaic customs, if he changes ceremonial laws, so be it. Remember how many times the Lord said in his Sermon on the Mount, ye have heard that it hath been said... But I say unto you, I'm the final authority. Moses said, listen to him. If he brought a better hope, a message of spiritual deliverance, instead of simply physical deliverance, such as out of Egypt or out of Rome, when Jesus came to Israel, they wanted a physical deliverer, didn't they? They just wanted someone who would deliver them from their oppression under the Romans. But Moses was saying, you know, if he comes with a different message, a message of spiritual deliverance, you're to listen to him. If he is the mediator between God and man and brings the world a new covenant and a better testament, submit to him. Hearken unto him. That was Moses' greatest privilege and honor was to give that message. And it's interesting, when Stephen here is speaking his one and only message to Israel's spiritual leaders, he begins that message with the same word, doesn't he? After he says, men and brethren, what's the next word? Hearken, hearken. Why? Because faith comes by hearkening. And hearkening to the word of God. So that was the greatest privilege in Moses' life. Now, by the way that Stephen spoke of Moses to Israel's religious rulers in his sermon of Acts chapter 7, it is very obvious that he had nothing but great respect for Moses. So the charge that he had blasphemed Moses was made to look completely unfounded. Far from blaspheming Moses, Stephen's words showed that he had great admiration for the man. Who couldn't have admiration for Moses? He not only knew that Moses was God's providential choice to deliver Israel from Egypt, but Stephen also knew that he served, that Moses served as a prophetic picture type, a divinely prophetic type of the one who Stephen was willing to die for. And he did die for. In fact, we could say that the disrespect issue was actually totally the other way around. It was the self-righteous hypocrites of that prestigious council who had made of none effect the writings of Moses, which is the definition for blasphemy. They are the ones who had blasphemed Moses because they are the ones who rejected and even killed the very prophet that Moses had told them in Deuteronomy 18.15 to do what? As we said, to listen to. Just as their forefathers had rejected Moses in his first attempt to deliver Israel from her bondage in, in Egypt, Israel's first century leaders had rejected the one like unto Moses who had come to deliver them. Now in last week's lesson we had discussed the first 40 years of Moses' life and they were spent in Pharaoh's palace gaining the best education that the world at that time had to offer. There was, however, a great atmosphere of danger in the palace, as there would be in any palace in the world, right? Lots of dangers in a palace. Every kind of seductive and pernicious influence would have been a matter of daily temptation 
for Moses to be met with resistance, just as Joseph had to do with Potiphar's wife. So Moses, I'm sure, in those 40 years had to resist many, many temptations. We're not told about those, but we can be sure there were plenty of them. And not only was Egypt um, a place with a lot of temptations, but it would have been the capital of worldly materialism. The Egyptians were very materialistic, especially their leaders. They even wanted to take all their material goods with them, didn't they? That's why when they find these tombs of the pharaohs, they've got all their goodies with them. They would even kill their wives and put their wives there with them so they could go with them into the next world. Wouldn't that have been awful to be married to a pharaoh? And when he died, you had to die? But they were very materialistic, and superstition was absolutely rampant in that day and in that culture. And the gods of Egypt, with small g, they were the work of Satan's opposition to the work of God's kingdom. So how Moses, for 40 long years, was able to withstand all those many fiery darts of the evil one, we are not told. We don't know how he did that, except I must say it was probably because of that early childhood education he got on his mother's lap. She trained him well, and as did his father Amram. How he resisted all the contamination of Egypt, we are not told. What we do know is that at the age of 40, Moses' faith was so rock solid that he not only had compassion for his people in their misery and in their suffering, in their distress, but he was willing to risk everything in order to deliver them. Think of this, Moses was preserved from death, you know, as a child, as a baby, from the edict of Pharaoh uh, to kill all the baby Hebrew boys. He was delivered by the act of kindness from an Egyptian princess, and she was a Gentile, was she not? She's the one who lifted him out of the basket, and then she also protected him. She gave him a protected asylum in Pharaoh's very palace, a Gentile palace. He was protected there from the slavery and the bondage and the the affliction of his people. He was the only Hebrew who wasn't a slave. And yet at the same time, he was graciously afforded the nurturing care of his own parents. That is pretty amazing. That's exceeding abundantly above all that his parents could have ever asked, you know, thought to ask of. Well, the prophet like unto him, the Lord Jesus, also found preservation in Egypt, didn't he? From the edict of the death edict of another evil man, Herod the Great. Where did Joseph and Mary take young two-year-old Jesus for protection? Into Egypt, exactly. And he was also afforded the nurturing care of his mother and his father in that time. And then when Moses' life was later on threatened by a different pharaoh, in Exodus 2.15, you know, the pharaoh who didn't remember Joseph and the pharaoh who was, uh, no, no, this is a different pharaoh from that one. Yeah, this is a different one who got angry when Moses killed the Egyptian taskmaster and in rage he wanted to kill Moses. And Moses again found safety where? Among Gentile people, refuge with other Gentiles, the Midianites. So have you ever thought about the fact that the preservation and the blessing of Israel, her history and her preservation and kindnesses to her has been interwoven with acts 
from Gentile people, acts of kindness and acts of faith from Gentile people? Do you think that the uh, Jews who comprised Stephen's audience had really ever reflected too much on that? But it's true. You know, in the Holocaust, there were Gentile people who would, like Corey Ten Boom, who would protect Jewish people. I hope that we will do that if Jews are persecuted in our country, that we would be willing to risk ourselves to, to protect them. But throughout, and this is one of your homework questions. I want you to go through, and I've given you some hints with scripture, but there have been many times when kindness from Gentiles and faith of Gentiles have actually helped to preserve the Jewish people and Israel. Um, but I think they had selective memory when it came to that. They forgot about all those kindnesses. Well, the first 40 years for Moses ended with good news and bad news. I have a little granddaughter who's seven years old. Her name is Noelle. And she always comes to me and says, Grandma, I have good news and bad news. What do you want to hear first? And I always say, let's get the bad news over with first, and then we can get the good news. <laughs> but I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to give the good news first. The good news was that Moses renounced Egypt. The good news was his renunciation of Egypt. The bad news was Israel's renunciation of him. <laughs> Israel rejected him. He renounced Egypt, but Israel renounced him. Moses' first official visit to his brothers, his Jewish brothers, to attempt to alleviate their suffering and to bring peace among them because they were bickering with one another. Bring peace to them as a people. That first attempt ended with his first exodus out of Egypt. And when he left that first time, he left all alone. He was by himself. And I got to thinking he should have enjoyed the quiet and the solitude because the next exodus, he was going to be followed by some two million murmuring sheep. And he had to lead them around for how many years? 40 years. So I hope he enjoyed the solitude of that first exodus. And then I thought about this. You know, as Moses, had, he killed that Egyptian, and what did he do with him? Right, he hid him in the sand. Well, for the next 40 years, Moses himself was going to be buried in the sands of Midian, presumably dead to his Jewish brothers. For all they knew, he was long gone dead. They didn't really care. They were miserable. They didn't have time to reflect on Moses. They were so consumed with their own problems. But they likely never thought that they would see Moses again, right? Just like Jesus. Once he was gone, they didn't think they'd ever see him again. For all they knew, he was buried. Well, however, in the meantime, Moses was very much alive and he was gladly accepted by the Gentiles, the Midianites. They readily appreciated. And this is true, people who have been in darkness a long time, when they see the light, they, they're happy, right? They readily accept. And so they readily accepted how he had delivered seven daughters of their chief from the oppression of selfish shepherds who had tried to hoard the water of life for themselves. Isn't that exactly what... Israel's leaders and people, generally speaking, had tried to do, hoard the water of life for themselves. That's what these shepherds were doing. And so when Moses came and delivered those daughters, they accepted him. The Gentile fold accepted Moses. And he gained for himself a Gentile bride. 
And it tells us in Exodus that he was content to live his life among the Gentile people. That's all a picture of what? The church age, isn't it? Well, in Acts 7, Stephen almost completely skipped over the second 40-year phase of Moses' life, which was spent in a Gentile land with a Gentile bride. Because in the typology of Christ, that is a picture of the church age. And that was not Stephen's focus in his sermon. Now, again, we know that he did stress geography to the Sanhedrin council. He spoke about Egypt, Moses in Egypt, and Moses in Midian, and Moses at, as we're going to see today, at Mount Sinai. All those were Gentile places, reminding his listeners that God is not limited to do his work just in the land of Israel. But Stephen's main message was to present the Jews with their own history. So his narration only included one event in Moses' second 40-year phase of his life. And it was the famous incident that actually launched him uh, to return to Egypt. It was his God-given commission from the burning bush. Although Stephen only spoke of that one closing event of Stephen's 40, you know, his second 40 years, he only mentions that burning bush incident Yet, I think for our benefit, we need to learn a little something from those 40 years. I mean, that's four long decades, right? So there's got to be something in there for us in that time frame. Those were actually very critical years for Moses. Critical. God was seeing to it that Moses, the man, now I'm not talking about Moses, the type of Christ here, but God was seeing to it that Moses, the man, was better prepared for his upcoming deliverance work. Actually, the next four decades not only further prepared Moses in Midian by way of shepherding. You do learn a lot as a shepherd, shepherding sheep. And he did learn a lot from his shepherding days, his pastoring days. But not only did God further prepare Moses by way of shepherding, but he was also further preparing Israel in Egypt by way of suffering. Doesn't he also prepare people that way? Shepherding and suffering. When Moses did return for her, for Israel, she was going to be fully ready to accept him as her deliverer. And he would be, as he had been for the Gentiles for that period of time, he would then be Israel's good shepherd as well. Perfect picture of everything about the Lord, isn't it? I don't have time to stop and tell you all, but I'm sure your minds are thinking of it. Well, you know, the colleges of Egypt, which is speaking about the you know, colleges of this world, they could never, just like with you and I, they could never equip Moses the man with the spiritual lessons that are learned by the experiences of life. I went to college to learn how to be a teacher. Most of what I learned was like a grain of sand. Most of the teaching is either just natural or you learn by doing it. <laughs> there were some good things, but what do we, where do we learn the most? From life, yes, from life experiences. Moses learned by raising sons. I think when we raise children, we learn more than they do. They teach us an awful lot. <laughs> uh, he learned a lot as being the spiritual head of a family. 
And as I said before, he learned a lot by tending to sheep. Sheep are pretty dumb animals, and it's kind of embarrassing for us that the Lord compares us to sheep because they are one of the dumbest animals there are. And they can't even protect themselves. If they fall on their back, they can't even get up. Well, that's us. And he learned a lot tending to sheep, and he also was allowed to spend plenty of time with God one-on-one in the desert. Moses went from the palace to the pasture. That was a radical change for him. I thought about how, how Joseph went from the prison to the palace. Well, Moses did it the other way around. He went from the palace to the pasture. That was a big change. Have you ever had a radical change in your life like that? I surely did. When I met my husband, I was, I was taking a two-hour-a-day train ride into the inner city of Chicago. I worked in what's called the Loop downtown Chicago. My office was on State Street. You don't get any more center Chicago than that. And I went an hour there and an hour back. When I met my husband, little did I know that a year later, I would be on the back side of the desert, the west end side of the desert, (laughs) in the forest, behind tobacco fields, 20 miles to the nearest grocery store. That was a radical change for me. That was almost 40 years ago. That was a big change. I didn't know a person in North Carolina, not a single soul other than my husband, and he was traveling all the time, all the time. One year he was gone 152 days out of the year. And there I was in the woods by myself, not knowing a soul, didn't have a church family, didn't have friends, didn't have, I wish I knew you guys then. I was lonely. But you know what? The Lord used that time in my life. Just like I think he used it with Moses. You know, it's on the backside of the desert that the Lord takes his children to get them away from the busyness, right? And the noise and the applause of Egypt. The lusts of the world and the pride of life lose their appeal and lose their temptation when surrounded by miles and miles and miles of endless pine cones. No, I mean (laughs) sand. (laughs) Just think of all the sand Moses saw in his life. Endless miles of sand and nothing but the gentle of the sheep. Now, in my case, it was, <laughs> and the honk, help! My husband is a foul person, and he loves animals, so we had quack, quack, and cluck, cluck, and all the noises of birds. But, you know, that, that's good. The quiet is good to get one-on-one with the Lord. Everything that might distract is set aside so that man might hear the still, small voice of God. The backside of the desert, and you may be there right now, but that's where God tends to send so many of his children for their spiritual training. And it's a good thing. All the patriarchs were nomadic shepherds. David was a shepherd. What did he learn? Oh, he learned a lot of lessons. He learned how to kill a lion and a bear, and that prepared him to kill Goliath. He learned a lot of lessons on the, in the fields, in the pasture. Um, where, did, where did John the Baptist like to hang out? In the wilderness, crunching on locusts. Yeah. 
And uh, Paul, do you know the Apostle Paul spent probably three years in the Arabian desert learning more about the Lord. In the desert, God's servants learned two critical lessons. Number one, the complete vanity of human resources. Moses' first, first attempt to deliver Israel, Moses the man, his first attempt was done totally in the flesh, wasn't it? He killed a man. He wasn't waiting on God. He did that in his flesh. So we learn the complete vanity of human resources. And the second thing we learn is our utter dependence on God. Moses spent a whole generation, 40 years is a generation. He spent a whole generation of years in the sand school of God. The sand school. Have you been to the sand school? And I don't mean the Sand Hills Community College down there. <laughs> he was in this. And you know, he was 80 years old by the time he graduated. He spent a long time in the sand school. You know, Egypt is pretty much full of sand. Have you ever been to Egypt? Yes, I know some of you have. It's just a lot of sand. 80 years old. When he, I hope he didn't have to pay tuition all those years. That'd be pretty expensive. But when he finally graduated, nothing could compare with his graduation ceremony. Not only was he the top of his class, because he was the only one in that class, <laughs> but his commencement speaker was none other than the great I am himself. Wow. So this is where our discussion of Stephen's historical narrative takes us next. Last week we looked at the first visit of Moses and the fast vanish of Moses. Today we're going to look at the fiery vision, the father's voice, and the famous victory. So let's begin. I forgot to tell you to also find Exodus 3. Um, but first of all, let me just read, since you're in Acts, let's look at verses 30. Acts 7, verse 30 and 31. It says, And when 40 years were expired, there appeared to him, that's to Moses, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight. I'm going to stop right there in the middle of that verse. And will you flip over and find Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. And let's look at verses 1 to 4. It says, now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. Exactly what Joseph had said in Genesis 37, 13. Here am I when his father sent him out to his brothers. All right, if you look at Exodus 2.23, I didn't read it. But in that verse, Exodus 2.23, we are told that the Pharaoh who sought to slay Moses after hearing that Moses had killed one of the Egyptian taskmasters had died. He died. So it was going to be safe for Moses to return to Egypt. He, that guy would have killed him on the spot. He would never have listened to him. 
He's dead. It just reminds me again of Herod the Great. When did Joseph and Mary take Jesus back to Israel? After Herod the Great died. So here we find out that the Pharaoh died. And now it's the end of 400 years as well. The children of Israel have experienced an additional generation's worth of suffering in their bondage since they had last seen Moses. Scripture tells us in that same verse, verse 23, that the people, the the Israelites, sighed. (sighs) Sighed over and over again, continual sighing by reason of the bondage. And they cried and they groaned. You see, at last... They'd had enough, and they were ready for a deliverer, as God had known from the beginning that they would be. He knew they would finally be ready after their 400-year sojourn in Egypt. And Moses was also now ready. As George Rawlinson wrote in the pulpit commentary, he said, quote, The hot blood of youth had given place to the calm serenity of advanced life. End of quote. Is that not true? In our youth, don't we have more emotions and hot, just flares and, you know, all all that is so wonderful as you get old. That's one of the good things about aging. You kind of calm down to a serenity, or at least most of us do. (laughs) So all this, Moses was ready and Israel was ready. So all that remained was for God to give Moses his marching orders. Now, the day started out for Moses just as the past 14,400 days had passed, had started out for him. I got to thinking, how how sad for Moses. After 40 long years, he's still tending to his father-in-law's sheep. How come he didn't get any of his own? Poor guy. He's tending to his father-in-law's flock of sheep, and he's on the backside of the desert in the mountain range, which is called Horeb. That's the name for the whole mountain range. But he's near a particular peak, as Stephen says, and that peak is called Mount Sinai. When, all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush. Now, there are several things we want to discuss. One of them is the when of the event. We've already discussed that. When did this this happen? At the end of his second 40 years of life. Okay, That's when it happened. Now, I want to discuss the who of the event. We need to identify the angel of the Lord. Well, we don't really have to search very long to find out who he was. All we have to do is look at Exodus 3, verse 4, because it tells us that the one who called Moses out of the midst of the bush was Lord, L-O-R-D, all capitals, which means it's the word Jehovah. And also he's called in that verse God. So the one who called Moses, the angel of the Lord, is none other than God. Now, the angel of the Lord is a term often used in the Old Testament to refer to who? To the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus, the second person of the triune Godhead. It is what we call a theophany. It was the eternal Son of God who used Moses to deliver Israel from her bondage to Egypt because it was a prophetic picture of his own future redemptive work for all of the enslaved sinners of Egypt, which includes you and I, all of us. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Jesus Christ is the one who delivered Israel from Egypt. He just used Moses as his instrument. 
Did you know, and I hope you do, that the Jehovah of the Old Testament is one and the same as the Jesus of the New Testament? One proof verse for that is Isaiah 43, 11, which says this, God is speaking, and God says, I, even I, am the Lord. And that word for Lord is all capitals again, so what he's saying is, I, even I, am Jehovah. And beside me, there is no Savior. And the word there is Yeshua. So he's saying, I, even I, am Jehovah, and beside me, there is no Jesus. The Jehovah of the Old Testament is the Jesus of the New Testament. And how did the pre-incarnate Jesus appear to Moses? Well, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush is the way that Moses was divinely inspired to record what he actually saw. He, only, he, he not only saw it, but he recorded it. He's the one who wrote this account. Now, the Hebrew word for bush is sene, S-E-N-E-H, which is still the name for a small thorny species of the acacia bush that grows in the Sinai Desert area yet to this day, and it's still referred to as a senna. In that dry and arid land, which is really nothing but desert, it would not be very unusual at all for such a flammable object as this small bush to be on fire. If there was a storm and lightning, a bush like this would catch on fire. So I'm sure after 40 years in the desert, Moses had seen more of these little bushes than he ever wanted to see. And he had probably seen many of them on fire as well, but they would quickly burn out. What caught his attention in this situation is that the bush was burning and yet it was not consumed by the fire. And so he turned aside to see what he described as the great sight. It was something miraculous. It was a great sight. That's Exodus 3.3. Now the Hebrew word senna appears only one other time in the Old Testament and it is also in reference to this very same scene of Moses before the, bu the burning bush. It's in Deuteronomy 13, I mean I'm sorry, 33.16 and Moses is speaking of the good will of him that dwelt in the bush. Senna. The thing, however, that, that's not unusual for him to use that same word, because that's what it was, that same senna was the bush, but the thing that's insightful in Deuteronomy 33, 16, is that the Hebrew word used for dwelt, the goodwill of him that dwelt in the bush, in the senna, the Hebrew word for dwelt is the word shakan, shakan. It's where we get Shekinah, Shekinah glory. You see, the Shekinah glory was the flame of fire burning in the bush and yet not consuming the bush. It was from the midst of the Shekinah glory that the pre-incarnate Christ appeared to Moses. And that really makes complete sense. Do you know who it was who was leading Israel for 40 years in the wilderness by way of a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night? Who was in that cloud, that fire? 
Now, during the day, the fire looked like smoke. So they called it a pillar of cloud. But it was Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ was the one leading Israel for 40 years in the, in the wilderness. And you know, in Exodus 19, 18, it tells us that the Lord descended from heaven down onto Mount Sinai. And how did he appear? In fire and in smoke. That's the Shekinah glory of Christ. And it says the whole mountain quaked. So it makes sense that the Lord Jesus appeared in the bush in the midst of his Shekinah glory that looked like fire, and yet it didn't consume. So now we want to discuss what the little bush itself pictures. What does it represent? Well, let's analyze it. In scripture, now it's a small thorny bush, okay, that still is in the deserts today. In scripture, thorns symbolize three different things for us. Number one, the curse of sin. If you go back to Genesis 3.18, which you don't have to do, but after the fall, not only was man cursed, but the earth was cursed, right? And every time you're out in your garden pulling weeds, do you think like me? Oh, that stinking curse. <laughs> Thorns and thistles and weeds speak of the curse of sin. Secondly, thorns speak of the pain that comes from sin. Have you ever pricked yourself on the thorns when you're cutting back your rose bushes, right? And you get pricked, there's pain from sin. Uh, thorns speak of the suffering of our bondage in this sinful world. I feel pricked by thorns every time I turn the news on these days, don't you? Mm. Living in this world is a sticky business. It's a pricky business. It just hurts. Paul suffered from a thorn in the flesh, which God allowed to keep Paul humble. Israel, this is in Ezekiel 28, 24. Israel's grieving thorn consisted of all the enemies around her who wanted to destroy her, who despised her. Israel still has grieving, a grieving thorn of enemies all around her who want to obliterate her, right? The Israelites at the time of Moses... They were sighing and they were groaning because of their sufferings and they were crying out. Finally, they got to the point where they were crying out to God to deliver them. And I was thinking how we should be moaning and groaning and sighing more often. Let's do it. Let's all groan together and say, Lord, deliver us and cry out to him and maybe he'll come back and deliver us. I hope because I, I'm getting pretty miserable down here. Well, third thing, thorns also remind us of the crown of thorns that was put on the head of our Savior who came to deliver us from the curse of sin and the pain of sin and the enemies of God in Egypt who desire to keep us enslaved to, to death eternally. The enemies of God would love to keep every one of us enslaved throughout eternity, wouldn't they? To death and sin. So into the very place of the curse, entered the wonderful substitute who literally became the curse of sin for us so that the full cup of God's wrath against sin was poured out on him instead of on us. The flames of the holiness of God in judgment against sin engulfed that one crowned with thorns. We could say as he's on the cross, he was just engulfed in flames. But 
They did not consume him, did they? Remember when we discussed how, uh, I think it was Peter who said it was not possible for death to hold the prince of life? It was not possible. Just like if you're in Christ, it's not possible for death to hold us and consume us either, is it? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. The bush from which the Lord in his Shekinah glory appeared to Moses was not only thorny, it was small. The Lord could have chosen to show himself or to speak, you know, from the midst of a big, mighty tree. They're probably pretty rare in the wilderness, but maybe in the mountain area, he could have found one or a rock or something. I don't know. He could have found something big and insignificant. But instead, he appeared in a small bush, a desert bush, one that spoke of thorns and suffering and pain and seeming insignificance. That little bush wouldn't seem very significant, right? Just like with Jesus, they said, you know, can anything good come from despicable Nazareth? They esteemed him not. They didn't, he was a carpenter. He was seemed, he seemed insignificant to the world. But as much as you might be thinking, I'm going to say the bush represented the Lord himself, it didn't. The Lord appeared in the bush. What was the bush? The bush pictured Israel. The pre-incarnate God was in her midst, in the midst of Israel, then, back then, just as he would manifest himself in the flesh from her midst in the future. Moses was being summoned. He was being commissioned by the Lord himself to return to Israel to deliver her from the burning affliction that she was suffering in Egypt, in the world. She had been in the furnace of Egypt for a long time, but she had not been consumed. In fact, she had continued to multiply no matter how much the various pharaohs tried to stoke the fire. She still wasn't consumed. Now, she was small, and she was insignificant if you put her on the world map, just like she is yet today. Israel's only about the size of New Jersey, and yet she's the epicenter of everything going on in the world, right? But she looks pretty small and insignificant, like a little senna in the middle of a desert. Pharaohs and kings and nations and inquisitions and pogroms, which is what the Russians did to the Jews, um, and holocausts, and Islamic exterminators, and other types of anti-Semitic forces, unfortunately, even within Christendom, have blazed fires of persecution on this small, seemingly insignificant number of people called the Jews ever since their inception. And yet... They have not perished from the world scene. That's a miracle. That is a miracle. Do you, do you see any Moabites, any Ammonites, any Hittites, Amalekites, Midianites, Jebusites, Canaanites, Parasites? Yes. <laughs> but do you see any of those people in the world today? No. They've all gone out of existence, but Israelites? 
Yes, there are still Israelites in the world. Do you know, once upon a time, Frederick the Great, why do they always put the Great behind their names? I don't know, they're so egotistical, but Frederick the Great of Persia, he challenged a man named Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, how'd you like a name like that, to defend the Bible. And Count Zinzendorf who was a Moravian Christian. You know, those are the ones that make those really delicious little flat cookies. <laughs> Count Zinzendorf defended the Bible with two words. You know what they were? The Jew. The Jew. Napoleon did the same thing when he was asked why he believed in God. I don't know that he was saved. I don't think he believed in Christ. But he did believe in God. And he was asked why, and he said, same thing, the Jews, the Jews. Do you know that there has never been a people that have gone out of existence and then resurrected and back into the same land with the ancient language, the same descendants of Abraham? That On May 14, 1948, the world witnessed a resurrection from the dead that should have gotten their attention. When Israel got back to the land, that was a resurrection. That was a miracle. You cannot put out Israel. She will never, ever be consumed. Well, however, she herself has been a thorn in the flesh to many people in the world. Why do so many people hate the Jews? Why, do so, so much, why does so much of the world hate Israel? Turn their back on Israel. Please, Lord, let us not turn our backs on Israel. This scares me so much. But why? It doesn't make sense. I'll tell you why. It's because she is a thorn in the flesh. She is a grieving thorn to the prince of this world, Satan. He hates her because he knows who is in the midst of her, who was going to come out of the midst of her, who is still in the midst of her, and who will reign from the midst of her one day. And Satan has been relentless in his attacks to consume her. So why has she not been consumed? Well, God himself said in Isaiah 49, 16, I have graven thee, Israel, on the palms of my hands. She's secure, just like the church. We're secure, too. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Nothing can extinguish us, as the same with Israel. Isn't the existence today of Israel back in the land something that the world should turn aside to look at as a great sight? Absolutely, just like Moses said, it's a great sight. It is the greatest proof besides the resurrection of the Lord Jesus of the reality of the God of Scripture. The reason that the Hebrew people are not consumed, although they have known nothing but thousands of years of persecution, thousands of years in the fiery furnace, pictured, by the way, by the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I like their Hebrew names better, uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, who were thrown into the fiery furnace in, Bur in, um, in Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar because they wouldn't bow before the great statue. So they were thrown in the fiery furnace, and it was stoked up <laughs> ten times, seven times, I don't remember what, but it was just hot as it could be. 
And Nebuchadnezzar looks down there into the fire and he says, hey, didn't we throw three boys in that fire? Yes, sir. Well, then why are there four? And one of them looks like the son of God. I'll tell you why. Because <laughs> it was the son of God. He's in the midst of Israel protecting her. They didn't even have the smell of smoke on them, did they? So that's why she can never perish. Now the sad truth, however, is that Israel, pictured by the thorny bush, uh, the sad truth of the fact is that thorns, thorns are actually abortive branches, which if they had been developed properly, would have become branches that bore leaves and then fruit. But the spiritual, the long spiritual history of Israel which is what Stephen's narrative is trying to show, is that her fruit-bearing had been aborted because of her continual rejection of God's chosen deliverers and his spokesmen, the prophets. And then he sent his son, and they even put him to death, all of whom were only you know, sent to deliver her physically from flames of persecution, um, not only, did I say only? They were to deliver her from the flames of persecution and also to, to point her to Christ. But she was fruitless, wasn't she? She proved to be fruitless. Remember when the Lord cursed the fruitless fig tree on his way into Jerusalem there in Bethpage? Why did he do that? What was it showing? What was it a picture of? It was a picture of Israel who was spiritually fruitless. And he cursed it. She withered up and died. He was so angry. Much of Israel's history has found her um, under the refining and chastening flames of God's own judgment for her disbelief. And yet, he is the covenant-keeping God. He keeps his promises, and he will keep his promises. Those who say that God is finished with Israel don't know God. He is not finished. He made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He promised them the land from the river of Egypt, which is the Nile, all the way to the Euphrates, and he keeps his promises. He is not done with her, and that's what he's going to remind Moses from the burning bush, and this is why he would resend Moses into Egypt to deliver Israel. There was to be a second coming of Moses as Israel's kinsman redeemer because God would not let her perish in the flames of Egypt's persecution, and he never will. The Lord Jesus, who is still Israel's kinsman redeemer, even though she has not yet, yet accepted his redemptive work on her behalf, but he's still her kinsman redeemer, he will also be resent by God to save her from the flames of Egypt's persecution. The world... At the time of the Lord's second coming, the world will be doing its united best under the full power of Satan's greatest pharaoh ever, known as the Antichrist. They will together be united to burn Israel to the ground so that there is nothing left of her but ashes. But she cannot be consumed. The eyes of the Lord are upon her at all times, and he will hear her groans, he will hear her sighs, he will feel her pain, just as he always had, and when she is finally good and ready to accept her deliverer, he will come, and he will come right on time, 
and she corporately, as a nation, will be saved, and at long last, her thorns will blossom into fruit. Does that get you excited? Do you love Israel? You should. You should. Let's look at the Father's voice to Moses. I am probably out of time, and I forgot to bring my watch, but just if you have to go, go. All right, let's look at Acts 7, verses 31 to 34. All right, uh, it says, when Moses saw it, this is Acts 7.31, when Moses saw it, the burning bush, he wondered at the sight, and as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came unto him, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled and durst not behold. Then said the Lord to him, put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. I have seen... I have seen the affliction of my people which is in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning and am come down to deliver them. I love that. And now, he's talking to Moses, now, not when you tried to do it 40 years earlier, now, come, I will send thee into Egypt. So as Moses drew near to the wondrous sight before him, it says the voice of the Lord came unto him. The one who appeared in the Shekinah glory with the flames, you know, out of the midst of the burning thorny small bush, identified himself to Moses. You know, Moses might think, who are you? I don't know. It could be Satan talking to him, you know. So God immediately identifies himself. He says he is the God of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those men, now think of this, they're all dead. Those men are dead, long dead. And yet he says he is their God. Why didn't he say, I was their God? Because they're very much still alive. And this is exactly the same passage that the Lord Jesus used to prove the resurrection of the dead to the Sadducees, who did not believe in resurrection. And they only said they believed in the inspired writings of Moses. They could only count on those as being inspired. So Jesus takes them to a passage from, by Moses. And he says to them in Luke 20, Now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush. When he called the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. For he is not a God of the dead, but of the living. Those are the words of the Lord Jesus. He was telling the Sadducees, even Moses at the bush knew that there was a resurrection of the dead because he said, God said to him, I am the God of the patriarchs. Now, the Lord identified himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, in order to assure Moses that he was a covenant-keeping God and that he was about to uh, announce the manner in which he was going to keep his promises to Abraham. Remember he had said, your people will sojourn for 400 years, and then I will deliver them. So he's going to tell Moses how he's going to do that. Who's he going to use? He's going to use Moses. He's going to use Moses himself. Now can't you imagine, if you were in Moses' sandals over the past 40 years of your life, surely he had a lot of time to think. Surely he must have questioned how he had ever ever supposed that he was the man providentially saved as a baby and then chosen by God, you know, put into the palace in order to deliver his people from their slavery in Egypt. He must have thought over the years, think of 40 years, some of you even aren't even 40 years old, right? Most of us 
are long past that, but <laughs> that's another story. But 40 years, that's a long time to think. And he must have looked back and been so humbled. He must have thought, how could I have been so presumptuous? How could I have been so arrogant? How, would, how did I ever think I would be the one to lead my people? Oh, that, must have, that was a big mistake. And I think that this is exactly why it took God so much convincing. You know, he had to convince Moses, yes, Moses, you're the man, you're the man. Because he, he gave excuses. What did he say? He said, I, I can't even speak. All I can do is, I've forgotten how to speak. It's been a long time with these sheep. <laughs> and so uh, now Stephen, he doesn't get into all the details concerning Moses at the burning bush. Again, why? Because he knows his listeners know this account inside out. You know, they know this this very well. They're familiar with it. Also because his point is to show the similarities between Moses and Jesus. However, for our sakes, we want to mention that the one speaking from the midst of the burning bush was the very one Stephen was preaching to the Jews, except not saying his name, but he's preaching the one who spoke from the, the bush. He was the eternal son of God, the one who could say and did say before Abraham was, I am. And they, sh they were shocked. How could you say such a thing? He reminded the people many times who he was by saying, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am, what else did he say? Uh, let me look. The good shepherd. I am the door. Seven times he used I am. And then remember when over 600 people came to arrest him there in Gethsemane? And they said, uh, he asked them, whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And what did he say? I am. And 600 men fell backward on their backs in front of him. He didn't have to be arrested. He allowed them to arrest him. There's power in that name. No wonder Moses was trembling. So the Lord said to Moses, he identified himself further in Exodus 3.13. He said, I am that I am. Moses was to tell the children of Israel that I am had sent him to deliver them. Time means absolutely nothing to God other than the fact that he established it for our purposes. And he watches it for our sake so that he keeps his promises right on time. But he is outside of time because he is ever present. He doesn't move like we do. He doesn't move from the past to the present to the future. He's just always in all three tenses at one time. Now, if you can understand that, would you please meet with me after the class and explain it? I don't know. You know, I'm in the present right now, but oops, now I'm in the future. And that was past. Now I'm in the present. Oh, now that's future. And that's, I mean, can drive you crazy. But he's in all three tenses at once. He is the eternal, self-existing, thrice holy, 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 uncreated, almighty, I am. And he says in Exodus 3.15 to Moses, this is my name forever. This is my name forever. Amazing. So no wonder Moses who was also to serve not only as Israel's deliverer, but as her mediator between God and her. No wonder he trembled, and it says he durst not behold. You know, he didn't dare look at the sight. And Exodus 3.6 says Moses hid his face, 
and he was afraid to look upon God. You know, those who are genuinely humble and righteous in their inner man, which is only possible by the work of the Holy Spirit, but righteous, humble people will be overcome with their own unworthiness when they are confronted with the absolute holiness of our God. And this is what scares me about the Church of America, is I think we have lost our reverence for the holiness of God. There is so much of a casual approach to God. Where is the reverential trembling of Moses or Isaiah when he saw the holiness of God and he said, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. Ecclesiastes 5.1 says this, Be not hasty and rash in thy approaches to God. Tread softly. Moses was told to put off his shoes because the place whereon he stood was what? Holy ground. You know, putting off of one's shoes, that speaks of removing all defilement before approaching holy God. You know, when we walk through this world, we pick up all the defilement on our, the bottom of our shoes, right? That's why I'm so glad my grandchildren are trained to take their shoes off the minute. That's the first thing they do when they walk in the door. Their moms have trained them well. I'm still working on my husband. <laughs> yeah, good luck on that one, right? <laughs> but it's a, it's a matter, you know, to take, it's just like <clears throat> taking off your hat. A man taking off his hat when he prays. Do you go to restaurants? And I'm sorry, this is just something I do not like. But when I'm in a restaurant and I see a man wearing his hat at the table, or especially not taking it off if they pray, that is just, I'm not legalistic on it, but it's just not showing reverence for God. You take off your shoes before God. You take off your hat. You're showing your reverence for him. Now, I, 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 don't, I just can't, I'm full of wonder how the Jews had gotten so off track with their obsession over the land and over Jerusalem and the temple, you know, so much so that they looked down their noses at diaspora Jews. How had they gotten so off track when their own history as a people began with the God of glory appearing to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq, and then with God continuing to be with Joseph the whole time when he was in Egypt, with all the patriarchs being buried in Samaria, and with, and with the great I Am himself proclaiming to Moses on the backside of a desert in Midian that that was holy ground. That, that ground was holy. It wasn't in Jerusalem. It wasn't even in the land of Israel, right? It was on the backside of a desert in Midian. You see, they couldn't, they just couldn't seem to understand that holy ground is wherever God meets with his people. Do you know where we are today? We're on holy ground. God is meeting with his people. In fact, as Stephen reminds the council in verse 36, some of the greatest miracles that God ever performed were not performed in the land. Well, they were when Jesus, but in the Old Testament days, they were performed in Egypt with the ten plagues at the Red Sea, when Charlton Heston opened it up, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and um, in the wilderness, 
you know, with the quail and the manna and the striking of the rock and all those miracles. None of, none of those Old Testament miracles were performed in the land, were they? A hymn written in 1769 by William Cowper says this, Jesus, where'er thy people meet, there they behold thy mercy seat. Where'er they seek thee, thou art found, and every place is hallowed ground. Well, in verse 34, Stephen referred to the Lord's words to Moses that he had seen, he had seen. Do you know why that's repeated twice in verse 34? I don't know. I was thinking about why would he say it twice? I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people. You think he saw it the first time in Egypt and maybe he's speaking about seeing it the second time when he'll return? I don't know. Or maybe the God the Father saw it and then God the Son says he saw it too. I don't know. I, I don't have an answer. If you can think of one, let me know. But he says, I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people in Egypt, and I have heard their groanings. And then he says, and I'm coming down. You see, he not only has compassion. First of all, the first thing he stressed to Moses was that he was a covenant-keeping God, right? Then he stressed his holiness. Take off your shoes. This is holy ground. What's the third thing? He expressed his compassion. But he didn't stop there. He just didn't say, I've seen, I've heard, I know about it. He did something about it. He says, I'm coming down. And he did. He came down and he used Moses to deliver them. All right, let's look at the famous victory, verses 35 to 37, Acts 7, 35. This Moses, whom they refused, saying, who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. How did Moses deliver the people? By the hand of the angel, by the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. He brought them out after that he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. And then he quotes from Deuteronomy 18.15, This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like Unto me, him shall ye hear. What Stephen is doing now is he put away his palette and his brush and he takes out his sword and they're starting to get it. He draws the council's attention to the fact that God put honor on the very same man that they had previously dishonored. Remember when Moses went to them the first time and they said, who made you to be a ruler, a prince, and a judge over us? But God sent the very same man they had rejected, and he sent him to indeed be their ruler and their judge, and their deliverer. And he did so by the angel of the Lord that appeared to him in the bush. That angel came down from heaven, not only to judge Egypt. Remember, he had promised Abraham, your descendants will be sojourners, and they will be treated evilly, but I will judge them. So he came down, and he did judge Egypt, didn't he? With the ten plagues, and then the army being drowned in the Red Sea, because they pursued. He wouldn't have done that, but they pursued. 
He came down to not only judge, but to deliver his people by the hand of his servant Moses. The strong implication of Stephen's message is that the Jews had done to Jesus exactly what their forefathers had done to Moses. In their rejection of Jesus, hadn't they basically said the same thing to him? Hadn't they said, who made thee to be a prophet and a king over us? Who do you think you are? Where do you get your authority to cleanse the temple? Where do you get your authority to heal on the Sabbath day? Where do do you get the audacity to say that a man's sins are forgiven? How dare you say you existed before Abraham? How dare you say that Moses wrote of you? And why do you let these people keep giving their hosannas to the king of Israel? Why don't you hush them up? Who do you think you are? We have no king but Caesar. Didn't they say the same thing to the Lord, right, at his first coming? But as Israel had learned after an additional 40 years of suffering in the furnace of Egypt that Moses was indeed her God-chosen deliverer, so will Israel after suffering many more years. She's still suffering since her rejection of Jesus. Suffer many, many more years in the furnace of Egypt before she will finally have had enough and sigh and groan and cry out to be delivered. And when her deliverer comes back, she is finally going to see with her own eyes that he is the very same one that she had rejected. Wow. In the account of Moses' second coming to deliver Israel, there is a picture of the victorious deliverance of Israel at the Lord's second coming. But Stephen doesn't develop that point. He's concentrating on getting the Jews to realize that their rejection of Jesus was simply a repeat of their own history, except far, far, far more grievous. Because in having rejected Joseph and Moses, they were only rejecting physical deliverers. But in rejecting Jesus, they rejected their one and only spiritual deliverer. They rejected the great I am. But the good news is that he keeps his promises. No matter what, if we forsake him, he is faithful, isn't he? And he will return one day for her. That's the whole picture of the Bible, isn't it? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your people. Thank you for their hunger for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. I don't know what we would do without it in this day. Living in the fiery furnace of this world is not easy. It's a prickly thing, but with the hope, the true hope of you and your return for us, we can live. We live because you live, and we can have the abundant life, and we can have peace in the midst of trying circumstances. We can have that peace that passes all understanding. We can have joy. No matter what is going on, we can have that inner joy, knowing that there is nothing that can ever consume us if we're safe in you. Because you, death has no power, no hold over the prince of life. You are our sure anchor. And we thank you for that truth, and we thank you for the truth of the fact that you are not finished with Israel. Replacement theology is of Satan. It is evil. And I pray, Lord, that these women will not fall for its lies. You are not finished with your people. 
Now, Lord, I ask that you would use us as your salt and light. May we beam forth the Shekinah glory of, of God through this, these earthen clay vessels to everyone we encounter this week. And bring us all back safely in two weeks, Lord, to hear more from your word. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And God bless you.